If you have your Bibles, open them to Ephesians chapter 1. And let's read uh, for one last time, at least in this particular series of uh, our sermons, Paul's great prayer of thanksgiving uh, for the Ephesians. And we'll start in verse uh, 15. Now hear God's Word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, please open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to hear Your great truth of Your Gospel. Please give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And help us to understand Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. We've been looking at this long prayer of the Apostle, and I've called it the Apostle's Prayer. Uh, Paul prayed lots of prayers in the New Testament. uh, This particular one is the first of two long prayers that he prays for the the Ephesians, and we'll look at the other uh, later on. But through the series, talking about prayer in particular, we've looked at uh, three things. First of all, we looked at the characteristics of prayer that Paul outlines. What prompts our prayers? Uh, what punctuates our prayers? He says it's thanksgiving. Uh, what, uh, uh, what, what makes us persevere in prayer? What keeps you praying? Well, what keeps us praying, frankly, is God's faithfulness. Certainly not our Uh, willpower and certainly not our good discipline because all of us have shaky discipline and shaky willpower. But God's faithfulness is the thing that will draw you back time and time again uh, to your prayers. Uh, What about the direction? The next week we talked about the direction of our prayers. And what I told you is Paul prays a uniquely Trinitarian prayer. We believe as Christians in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while that's very mysterious and very difficult to explain, uh, we do understand at least this much from the doctrine of the Trinity that God Himself is in relationship with Himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that these three together love and adore one another in some mysterious way. And that that love and glory that the three enjoy together spills out into creation. And we are to enjoy that as well. And so 
the direction of our prayers is one of relationship, to know God and to love Him and be in relationship with Him. And then last week, we talked about the content of Paul's prayer. And Paul's very, uh, he's doctrinaire. He comes out with all these glorious doctrines. And I mean, we could have spent weeks looking at the doctrines that Paul laid out in just that one prayer. But I picked one, the doctrine of life. Of life. My favorite movie, my favorite film of all time is Fiddler on the Roof. And I love it when Tevye sings... uh, Lahayim, to life, to life, Lahayim. Because that is really what all of us want. We want to live a life that is meaningful, that is filled with energy and passion and power. You can have sorrow, you can have lament, you can have joys, you can have all of those things and have a bad life. But at the same time, you can have all of those things and what God promises is a good life. A life of quality and quantity that is unique. And the way the New Testament writers and even you can pick up some themes of it in the Old Testament is this life is what they call eternal life. It's not just immortality. It's not just never dying or someday being raised from the dead and living forever, that's not eternal life. Eternal life is in some magnificent way drinking completely and deeply of that springing and living water that is flowing out of God Himself. And so this morning we're going to close with this, and I hope it's helpful to you. The sum of our prayers. We're going to look just at the last couple verses, 20 through 23, the sum of Paul's prayer. The sum of our prayers. And that sum, Paul says, is knowing Him. Knowing Jesus Christ, your Lord, your Savior. Knowing Him. Not just knowing about Him. One of the great dangers, and I'm a lover of theology. I love theology. I have spent a fortune learning theology going to graduate school and all that fun stuff and getting degrees and I have a library, you know, with lots of books. I love theology. The danger of theology is you can know a lot about God and never really know God. You can know tons about Him and not really know Him. And so when Paul and all of the the Old Testament, New Testament makes no difference, when they speak of knowing, they're talking about a knowledge of God that's not only in your head, it's in your heart. It's experiential. You actually are experiencing life. Life in God. To know Him, Paul says, and the hope of our calling means this. Very quickly, it means you're called to something and you are called for something. Now let me just give you, a, I'm going to do this quickly, so listen carefully. Called to something and called for something. This is just a compilation that I made from the New Testament, whole New Testament. And it, I didn't even touch the surface. I'm only going to give you a few. We are called to know Him and we are called to know Him to belong to 
Jesus Christ, to be in fellowship with Him, to know Him and know the power of His resurrection, to share in His sufferings and become like Him in His death, to be saints, holy ones, set apart for a purpose, to live with Him, to have our life hidden with Him in God. To freedom. We are called to freedom. We are called not to be slaves, but to be free in Jesus. We are called in one body. We are called to be at peace with God and peace with one another. We're called to live a life worthy. A life of love. A life of sacrifice. A life of service. We are called into His kingdom, into His glory, into a life that has intense meaning and purpose. All of us wonder something, what's the purpose of our life? Jesus Christ is the purpose of your life. We are called to follow Him, to be conformed to His image, to think His thoughts, and to have the mind of Christ. Dr. John Stott in his wonderful commentary says this, God has called us to Christ and to holiness, to freedom and to peace, to suffering and to glory. And all together, listen folks, and all together new life in which we know, love, and obey and serve Jesus Christ. Enjoy fellowship with Him and each other. To look beyond our present suffering to the glory which will one day be revealed in us. You see, we are called as Christians to be, uh, I don't know if this is the right word, biopic, I guess, where you have like those little lizards, you know, you see them on TV, the eyes like this. And to be able to look with one eye and see the world and enjoy the world and lay hold on the world that you are made for. But your other eye is moving and looking and gazing into the glory of Christ Himself. It's really unique. We are Trinitarian, but the way we know the Father is through the Son, Jesus. And what is the role of Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit comes so that He can exalt Jesus and explain Jesus to us. And so at the center of our lives, folks, the sum, as Paul puts it, as He gathers all things together, is in this great King. That's why we named our church, if you want to know, Christ the King. Because we have in this church a unique kingdom theology in our denomination as well. And, and we believe that the kingdom of God is present now. It's not some pie in the sky. We actually believe it exists now that Jesus is not a king in absentia. That He's somewhere else he is now living, breathing, sitting on a throne and ruling His world and His creation. Paul believed this with every single cell of his body. And he wants us to believe it too. And for that to permeate your prayer life. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that we, the people in this room and people everywhere else that believe in Jesus Christ are a new humanity. A new humanity. Ruled by a shepherd king. By a great high priest who not only makes sacrifice for you and for me, but He Himself is the sacrifice. Do you see it? A great high priest and a prophet. A prophet 
unlike any prophet. A prophet who always speaks the truth. A prophet who will not lie. How many of us suffer? People lie to us and we lie to others. And here you have somebody who never lies. Whose word you can trust with your very life. It's pretty amazing. He is the sum of all things. Listen to this. We are a new humanity. We have our eyes on the future while our feet are planted firmly rock solid in this present world. I don't want Christ the King to be heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I want our church to be have our feet planted firmly on this earth to be partakers of the world and yet not be of the world. Do you understand? Listen carefully. Have our feet planted firmly, rock solid in the present world. We enjoy the ability to live in the world, yet not be of the world. Yet live completely for Him, for the world, and for others. That's what He's calling us to, folks. To live for the world. As we went through that series just recently. Listen, only then, only then, Will you be fully human? Only then will the broken parts of our humanity, the schizophrenic part of our humanity, be joined and welded back together in health when you can become a true, full human. Why? Because your Savior was a full, true human. 100%. Human. Amazing. Amazing. So let's look at two things real quickly. We're going to look at the position He holds and the purpose that He has. The position He holds, the purpose He has. Look at uh, verse 20, uh, the second part of it. He says that Jesus Christ, the position He holds, one is an exalted position. He is seated at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, every name that is named. In that world, the world of Paul, you know, there were kings and there were these mighty men and they had their thrones. And to sit at the right hand of the throne meant you were commissioned with all authority. You You were the agent for the great king. And so what Paul is setting forth before you and I is, and it's hard in in America because we want to elect our leaders. I wonder how many of us would actually vote for Jesus if you really knew what he thought about things. Because he loved the poor. And most of us don't really care about the poor. I know that I have a hard time caring about poor people. So I have to make myself care, right? He cared about the poor people. He cared about injustice. He cared about unwed mothers. He cared about racism. And things that often we think are uh, political hot buttons, Jesus would have been on the wrong side of our political fence, frankly. I wonder if we would have voted for him. But they didn't get to vote. There was a throne. And whoever sat at the right hand of that throne wielded all power and authority in the name of the king. And so we see Jesus Christ being given that. Listen, the Ephesian people, 
lived in hostile territory. The Ephesian Christians did not live like we do in Christian America. And believe me, folks, this is Christian America still. It's getting less, but it's still Christian America. And we, we have a hard time understanding the hostility. I just read an interesting article uh, by Philip Jenkins, who is the professor of history uh, at Baylor University, church history. And Dr. Jenkins said that it is obscene for Americans to say that Christmas is under assault. He says it's obscene when you can turn on your TV and watch your brothers and sisters being slaughtered by the tens of thousands, only a few thousand miles from here. And the church in the Middle East systematically being eradicated before our very eyes to where perhaps this Christmas there will be no Christians in northern Syria for 1,900 years. Do you see why Dr. Jenkins says it's obscene for us to whine and cry and wring our hands because somebody doesn't like our Christmas trees? Do you see it? Where our hearts should truly be is with the slaughtered thousands. And how do you engage that way? Well, you do it through your prayers. And this is what Paul is trying to get us to look at. Look at your prayers. How are your prayers structured? What do they look like? And he's saying, we live in a hostile world. The world is hostile. And he's saying that the demonic and the satanic attacks against the church, whether they're here in little ways against Christmas or whether they're in horrific ways in other parts of the world where people are literally losing their lives and homes, that wherever it is that our God has power and authority over that, how in the world are we going to engage? What's going on in the Middle East can seem so abstract that you can almost not believe it. But you can pray. And I believe this, folks. I think if we really would give ourselves to this kind of prayer, that God would change our hearts. Don't you think so? Don't you think He would make us more tender towards what really is going on in the world around us and how people suffer? Yesterday we went down and uh, passed out turkeys. Oh, by the way, uh, our church gave uh, about $1,700 to the turkey fund. Do you remember we were trying to raise money for the turkeys? 2400 and, and then beyond that, we were able to raise another $1,000. So we ended up giving, uh, just with our church and some other donations, $2,700 to turkeys. And we passed them out yesterday. And where we passed them out, believe it or not, folks, the poorest zip code in the United States. Guess where it is? It's in El Paso. The poorest zip code in the U.S. And that's where we were. Amazing. Eye-opening. Third poorest county in the United States, El Paso County. We have a mission field right here. You don't have to drive too many blocks to find real heartache and sorrow. And these are not criminal poor that we passed food out to yesterday. These are real poor people. Elderly. It was amazing. Paul wants us to have that view that the world around us is our world and we are to go into it with an exalted God 
a king who is seated on his throne and has sent forth his emissaries, his army, if you want to put it that way, his agents, whatever you want to call it, your missionaries. He has sent us to be salt and light into this world. Christians were soon going to be plunged into deep darkness in that world of the Ephesian world. And Paul was telling them, don't despair. I'm telling you this morning, folks, as bad as you think things are, don't despair. Do not despair. The church has never done well, listen, never done well when it had political power or civil authority. It just doesn't do well. We do not do good. Christians are not good when we're given lots of power. You know when we do our best work? When do you think we do our best work? When there's a million point three eight thousand dollars to raise, like we're going to try to raise for our building, one million three hundred eighty thousand dollars is what we need for this building. And it's impossible from a small group like ours. Yes? That's when we do our best work. And you know what I want to tell you this as your pastor? Whether we get the building or not is not the issue. Are y'all listening? This isn't in my notes. I don't know what I'm doing telling you this. Let me tell you. Let me speak to you from my heart. Whether we get the building or not isn't the issue. The issue is this. It's one. It's singular. What's the sum of your life and my life? What's the sum of it? I'll tell you what it is for me, and I hope it'll be that for you. And then you can write your checks joyfully and without any, and cheerfully, as Paul said. If the sum of your life is Jesus Christ, if He's the glory, if He's what fills the windshield of your life, if He's what fills the horizon of your being, then whether we get the building or not really isn't the issue. The issue is, do we trust Him and will we step out in faith and let the, let the results be His? And if He says yes, yes. If He says no, we rejoice. Why? Because we have a place prepared for us already. Amen? A place already prepared for us that's better than the one we're going to get if we get it. And so we can go from one glory to another glory without any fear. And we can move in faith and we don't have to be disappointed or shattered when things don't go our way because the sum of our prayers and our life are in Jesus Christ. It's the greatest thing you can imagine having that life. Well, that's the exalted part of Jesus. What about the other part? The head. He is head over all His people. He has put all things, Paul says in 22, He's put all things under His feet, given Him to be head over all things, the church, His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. What Paul is saying is simply this, folks, that Jesus is the unifying force, the power and the force of unity in your life. You know, there are times, uh, many times, where I feel, uh, I don't know what the right word is, maybe discombobulated. Have y'all, is that a word even? You know, you're discombobulated. You don't feel together. You don't feel whole. You feel, you feel divided. 
You know, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I go here? Should I go there? Should I have this? Should I have that? Should I eat the pizza or should I have the, you know, the, the broccoli? You know, some hard choices are out there. You know, should I eat that candy bar or should I have that slice of lean chicken that doesn't taste like anything? Well, if I ask Scott, he tells me, you know, eat the chicken. We have all these choices, folks. And sometimes you can feel all, you know, torn up. But what he's saying here is Jesus Christ is the head of his church. He's the unifying factor to all that goes on in your life. Disunity, and he's saying he's the thing that's going to unify us as people. Disunity in our marriages, disunity in our families, when our kids and we're all out, you know, each other, and our friendships. You know, sometimes we're not sure, does he like me? Does he not like me? Does she like me? Does he not like me? Should, do they like me? Do I not like them? You know, can you hear Jackie Mason? Any of you heard the comedian Jackie Mason? Okay, never mind. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have all these things, these competing things. There's disunity. There's political polarization. Red states, blue states. Pretty soon we're going to have green states. We're going to have states of every color. Racism, still rampant in the United States. It's not as bad as it was, but there's still plenty of it and we've got a lot of work to do. There's socioeconomic disparity, there's poverty, there's all these things. They create disunity and they create havoc. And Jesus is say, Paul is saying Jesus is the unifying factor. He's the head of His people, the head of His church. He's the one that's going to give you the unifying power to go out there and take the chaos and the havoc that goes on even in our own lives, but around us in particular, and do something about it. Help. Be a strength. Be some glue. Jesus promises victory over His enemies. And the last enemy He promises victory over is death. And all this havoc and chaos is just a function of death. What about the purpose He, he intends? Let me give you this quickly and, and then we'll be finished. Look at back at verse 17 through 18. It says that the knowledge of Him having eyes that are enlightened and to know him the hope to which he has called us that 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 this is let, let me give you a word that you probably some of you already know but it's the word telos in greek the word telos means the end the purpose the final picture of uh, the completion if you will okay the last stroke of the brush on the painting and it's done on the cross, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, He said, Tetelestai. It's complete. It's finished. There's not another thing to do now. It's done. What is the purpose He intends? And this is it. The purpose He intends and what we'll look at probably for much of the rest of Ephesians is that He has created a new humanity, a new humanity that will know Him by our knowledge and also by experience. They go together. They're not two separate things. And it looks something like this. Some of you that like theology will appreciate this. There's three things we talk about. One is doctrine. Orthodoxy. There's right things you have to believe about Jesus. You can't just believe that He's you know, whatever you want Him to be. Otherwise, He's just you. 
He is somebody. He is something. So there's, there's an objective set of things about Jesus that we need to know. Doctrinal things. That's orthodoxy. But there's also the experiential part of our religion. In other words, experiencing. You know him, uh, know a lot about Him. You know a lot of orthodoxy and not know Him. And this is what we call in theology orthopathos. It's your feelings. And you know, I don't know why it is that Presbyterians just have, they, they break out in, uh, in hives if you talk about feelings. What is it about us that we don't want to feel? Oh, you can't trust your feelings. Oh, really? You can't trust. Have any of you ever had your mind play tricks on you? Yes, you have. We, if, God had, if God had not redeemed both our mind and our feelings, then we would have a problem. But He redeemed all of you, yes? The whole of you. So you can trust your feelings. You know, if you, if you don't feel right about something, maybe it's not right. Did you ever think of that? So it's okay. Trust your feelings. Sometimes they're not right. Sometimes your mind's not right. Maybe you're not thinking right. But there's orthopathos. That's the experiential part. Then there's orthopraxy. That's the practicing. That's when we are going to go to work and actually do. And Paul's going to spend three whole chapters on it. So will we. The goal of all creation, folks. The goal of all creation. Listen. The goal of all creation was new creation. The whole point of His creation. This is not plan B where you and I are today. Oh, oh! look what Adam and Eve did. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll do this. That is not the kind of God you have. The whole goal of creation was new creation. The telos was new creation. This is going to be hard for some of you, but listen carefully. And I, It's hard for me. I wrote this, and I'm, I don't particularly like it myself, but here we go. You going to listen? Listen to me. And let it go into your heart because it will help you. Think of your life where you are today. Can you embrace the truth that God wants you here today via, by the means of your past? However messy, painful, filled with heartache or regret, perhaps joy, whatever the case, can you embrace the fact that God wants you here today by the means of that past? That it's not plan B? That God, listen, that God is building from your past this present? And now, today, He is building your future out of this present. What's going on in your life today? And He's doing it in grace, with love and mercy, with gentleness and with tenderness. Can you believe that? Can you embrace that? Instead of living in a pool of regret, can you look back at your past and say, you know, that was bad, but God has done something beautiful because look where I am now. If you can embrace that, you finally will have the real God. The One who is. And is the sum of all things. 
Paul does not pray one time in this whole long prayer, people. Listen, he doesn't pray one time for a change in the Ephesian circumstances. Not that they quit getting persecuted, not that things get better, not that their church grows, not that they have $414,000 to make a down payment on a building. He doesn't pray for any of those things. He tells them, pray this way. Pray that you might know Him. Know Him. And then everything else will be added. Because if you have Him, what do you have? What do you have? You have everything. You have it all. Why? Why do we have it all? Why can we make such a claim? Because He gave it all to the last drop of His blood. He gave it all for you and me. That's why He is the sum of all things. That's why God looks at everything we do through the eyes of His Son. That's why He can say, as Rick and I were talking about this morning, He can say to you and I, well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because He's seen the best. He's seen the best. And we're trusting the best. And so He can turn to us and He can say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Your work is good. Because His work was glorious. And I've accepted Him and therefore I accept you. And everything else. He is the sum of all things. Let's pray. Father, we want to trust You. I pray that You'll give us the strength to do that. I pray You'll help us uh, trust You and not put our faith in our faith because it's not that great. But rather to put our faith in You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, Your Son. By the power of Your Spirit, Father, help us to do it, I, I ask You, please, in everything. Help us to love You and serve You and obey You fully because You gave it all. And You are the sum. You are the gathering together of all things. You did it in Jesus. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us, I pray. Amen.